0: Hello authors, I'm Joanne Morel, children's and young adult fiction writer and author of Short Nonfiction for Authors. Thanks for joining me for the Hybrid Author Podcast, sharing interviews from industry professionals to help you forge a career as a hybrid author, both independently and traditionally publishing your books. You can get the show notes for each episode and sign up for your free author pass over at the Hybrid Author website to discover your writing process, get tips on how to publish productively, and get comfortable promoting your books at www.hybridauthor.com.au. Let's crack on with the episode. Hello, authors. I hope you're all keeping well in whatever part of the world you reside and listen to the podcast in. Today's interviews with young adult author Sarah Epstein on writing suspense and hybrid authorship. Sarah is so generous with her experience and offers such a plethora of tips on writing suspense, balancing self-belief and self-doubt, having a hybrid author career and much, much more. So in my author adventure this past fortnight, it feels like it's been a busy one. If you listened to the last episode, you might, or maybe the one prior, you might have heard me talk about a big short story competition that was happening here in Australia called, I think it's called Australia's Biggest Yarn. And I looked back through some old works to see if uh, I had anything. And there was something there, but it wasn't quite ready once I started editing it. And I just didn't know where to take it and I ran out of time. So I declined to enter that competition. Lesson learned from that might be not to just run off with the the shiny things <laughs> and can't and know that you can't enter and be part of everything everything I suppose it just seemed like a good opportunity but short story writing it's you know, I've done some of it at the start of uni, but it's not really, not really my thing. And last episode, I talked about schedule that I had put together about working on nonfiction one day, working on the podcast the next, working on my children's fiction some other days. And whilst that schedule kind of worked last week and then this week, it, I, I think I've come to realise that my process when it comes to writing is a very chaotic one. And I don't have just one, I have multiple processes and I just have to go with whatever one suits that week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I ended up not just sort of selecting one day for one project, I kind of did a little bit of each project on the same day. So I worked on my children's middle grade novel and I worked on my non-fiction book and I was editing podcast episodes and the audio I recorded for author fears and how to overcome them. And that was good. I kept up that momentum for a few days and then just kind of then just worked on something that had to be done that had a time limit on it or anything like that. So again, I just have to know what needs to be done when and keep going with it. I have I have lost some time this week because I picked up some shifts at the day job. And that's been good for extra money. But uh, yes, I, I obviously have lost some time to do some things. So I just wanted to say, you know even if you do make a schedule or and if it doesn't go to plan then just be kind to yourself know that life happens it's it gets in the way you know obviously my day job was more important this week there was other things that needed my attention and that just has to come first finally last week i had my second meeting with business consultant kate and we discussed where i was at with the formatting of freelance writing quick tips for fast success and the author fusion how to overcome them so we have another date set where i'm hoping to have those formats done unfortunately the uh, like i said last time i'm still having problems with print so i'm going to focus on getting the ebook and the audio formats completed and then make a decision around print i will be doing a solo episode to do with printing through ingram from what i've learned so far because you know there's been a lot and it, if it can help someone else then yay So if you love the podcast or any of the episodes have helped you further in your author career, you can now pay it forward by buying me a coffee over at www.buymeacoffee.com slash thehybridauthor. You can also leave me a review of the podcast on whichever platform you listen in on and that would be great to let me know you're enjoying it, you've got something out of it, that's the point. So enough about me, let's crack on with the episode. Sarah Epstein is an author, illustrator and designer who grew up in suburban Sydney and now lives in Melbourne with her family. After achieving a design degree and enjoying a 25-year graphic design career, Sarah returned to her first loves of writing and illustrating. Her multi-award winning debut novel, Small Spaces, has been optioned for film and her second novel, Deep Water, also received multiple award nominations and has been translated into French and German. As well as dabbling in short horror fiction, Sarah has recently self-published two contemporary YA novels in her new Leftover Bay series, with two more novels due to be self-published later this year, including her newest YA psychological thriller, which we're all thrilled about. Welcome to the Hybrid Author Podcast, Sarah!
1: Hello there. Thanks, Joe, for having me.
0: <laughs> oh, you're welcome. So how is it you came to have a love of writing and how have you ended up writing in the genres that you do?
1: Oh, well, that's a good question. And it goes <laughs> all the way back to my childhood. It ties in with the fact that I'm just sort of one of those, you know, creative people. I kind of, I guess I just sort of had creativity in my blood. And I I suppose it was a little bit from my parents because my mum was always a very avid reader. And she was also really fantastic at drawing gorgeous little whimsical princesses and things like that. And she had a love of art when she was younger and I think probably kind of did nothing really with that. But I think I probably got my artistic gene from her. And then my dad, on the other hand, who was a mechanical engineer by day, he um, was uh, a musician. So he was a singer and a guitar player and he was uh, had been involved in kind of music and bands and singing groups pretty much his entire life. So, you know, I guess having that sort of growing up with that kind of creativity and also seeing what my dad was doing, thinking, well, I can kind of bust out of these, you know, norms, I suppose, of what I should be doing for a career. So it sort of nurtured my creativity. And I used to make lots of picture books and things like that. When I was a kid at the kitchen table, I would draw them, I'd write them. I'd let my little sister, the pest, sometimes come and, you know, (laughs) be co-illustrator. And then when I kind of got to my teens, you know, I I had a love of, of writing came about just because I was just reading so much. And I thought, well, well, I enjoy this. I wonder if I could do this. And, you know, I did a lot of what teenagers do. You know, we write a lot of angsty poetry and... (laughs) You know, things like that. And and I thought, well, I'd love to write a novel. And I'd start these novels and they just wouldn't go anywhere. And it was so frustrating for me because I used to think, can a teenager even be published? Like, you know, am I just wasting my time? But I'd squirrel away in my bedroom and, you know, while all my friends were out out and about socializing and doing things and I'd be sitting there trying to write a novel. And then, you know, I kind of leaned more into as I was getting towards the end of high school, I thought, well, what am I, what am I actually going to do then for a career? What am I going to do with my love of art and drawing and my love of writing and reading? Back then in the dark ages <laughs> it was <laughs> no. there was there was just no creative writing courses available at the time or if they were, they were very hard to find but they were mostly if you wanted to get into writing as a career you would get into copywriting or journalism and I wasn't really interested in that so i I leaned more into my artistic and creative side. And I thought, well, I'll try and get into a graphic design course at uni, which I did. And then sort of pursued that, you know, fell into a career of graphic design. Then I I really kind of just left the writing behind then, which is, is really sad now to think about because I was incredibly creative for the next couple of decades. You know, I I worked in graphic design full time. Um, I developed my own design business after hours. I also created um, wedding stationery. For a while there, I had my own artistic market stall business where I, uh, you know, painted children's paintings and, and all sorts of things. Like I did all these different things. And the one creative endeavor that I did, didn't pick up again was writing and it wasn't actually until I'd had my first baby and he's about to turn 17 so that kind of gives you a bit of a perspective (laughs) about the timeline that I sat down one day in a chair in in a chair while he was having a nap nearby and I just pulled out a notebook and I'd been reading and buying so many picture books for him and sort of falling in love with picture books again, falling in love with story. And I thought, oh, gee, I'd love to write a story. I'd love to write a picture book, even if it went nowhere. I just need to do something creative like that. And I sat down and I sort of started fiddling around with a a picture book story. And interestingly, from there, this voice came into my head that was more of a um, like a teenage pr- protagonist and, you know, she, and it was like this mystery and she had the, you know, she'd gone back to to this visit, this small town and all sorts of things were happening. And I thought, what is this? What is this? And all I knew to do was just to write it down in those moments when I was lucid and and not sleep deprived, I thought, well, look, just, just write this down because it's coming to you for a reason and it could mean something. And so then after that, you know, when I was, i would be pushing the pram and walking you know, walking my, my baby around the, the local neighbourhood and things, this story idea was just playing in my mind. And so really, that's kind of where it kicked off. And so yeah, it was about 17 years ago, maybe 16 years ago, because he was a little bit older than a newborn. And it really evolved from there, but still not for a few more years yet. And I just sort of got this bee in my bonnet. I was quite determined then I was going to finish writing a novel because I knew I had it in me to do it. I just didn't know how to do it. (laughs) I did a lot of research and things like that, but back then there weren't anywhere near as many websites or podcasts or Facebook groups or anything like that. Uh, I think Facebook was still in its infancy. Well, not quite, but there weren't really, groups weren't really a big thing back then. And I didn't really have anyone to talk to about it. I didn't know anyone that was doing it. And then I found one writing forum that was American, had one tiny little subfolder of Australian authors in there who weren't very chatty. So it was hard to kind of be able to connect. But I gleaned a lot of information about the way the American traditional publishing industry worked. And that was when I sort of started to get serious about it. So quite a long journey and, you know, woven into all of that was all of my art career as well. And a lot of doubt and a lot of wondering whether, you know, I should be pursuing the writing when I wasn't sure, if, you know, when I knew I was so good at, at my design career, it seemed crazy to kind of drop that and try and pursue something completely different. But what I kind of realized in the end was that both of the things go hand in hand. So just me as an all-round creative, um, they weren't competing with with each other at all. You know, now I try to use both creative talents. I'm trying to meld them together now as yep. much as I possibly can. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I definitely think there's a time and a place for things in our lives, you know, and it's it, it's amazing that way back as a teen, you, you had those thoughts about whether you could write a novel. I just think that's incredible, especially at that age. And it is funny. I, I wouldn't know what people done, I guess, to find creative writing groups pre-internet times Mm. and maybe just at the library or something like that who knows but wow it sounds like you know you've had a dream and it's never left you and it's meant for you very intuitive as well I think writing when when we have these ideas come to us and What's for you won't go by you that's that it yeah
1: and I think there's a there's definitely an element with it, my personality type in particular is that I can be quite stubborn so I feel like if I think I'm capable of something I have to give it a go or else it niggles and niggles at me and and if it's not quite working out the same or the way I want it to the first time I just have to keep pushing because yep. I, I get incredibly stubborn about the fact that no I decided I was going to do. This. <laughs> And I haven't seen it through properly, so I'm just going to keep pushing. And, you know, sometimes I guess to the project's detriment, but usually things work out well. And, you know, there's a big element of that in not letting things go, not letting old projects go and not letting this dream go, I suppose. And it's it's funny because I never really pictured it as one of those things like, oh, I'm so passionate about this. It's a dream. We've got to follow our dreams. Yeah, You know, it was nothing. It was it was very much like, no, this is something I want to do how do I research this? What are the steps I need to put in place? And and it's it's probably that sort of pragmatic attitude that I've always done with any of the steps with, you know, like when I was teenager, okay, well, I'm artistic, I've got to earn a buck. Um, so therefore, what can I do that's artistic, but it will, it's a paid career? Okay, design. So what have I got to do to get a portfolio together? How do I get into uni? Once I've got out of uni, how do I get my first job? How do I get my foot in the door? And so I suppose with writing, it was just naturally all of those things too. And being able to find information about how to go about publishing, you know, or or being published. That was, you know, took many years there, I suppose, there was probably a a solid five years there of while I was writing and trying to finish the first novel, there was a lot of information gathering as well, because I didn't feel qualified, I didn't feel comfortable. And now I realise, oh, I kind of wish that I hadn't been so worried about all of that, and that I'd thrown my hat in the ring, maybe a little bit earlier. I definitely wish that I'd made some decisions about the first and second books that I wrote earlier because it was actually my third, the third book I wrote that was my first one published, which was Small Spaces. But I always feel that nothing's ever wasted and, you know, I, I definitely go back to those my roots as a teen and also the first books that I wrote and the first scribbles I ever wrote. And all of that I intend to put out into the world in some shape or form because I'm stubborn. I just can't (laughs) let those go.
0: These are all, um, I think, traits of of authorship and a good author, especially to succeed in this industry. You have to be determined and you have to keep going because it's not an over, for most of us, it's not an overnight success. It's Mm. slowly chipping away that getting better constantly putting yourself out there and I think every well I, I've never met an author that doesn't deal with self-doubt I guess it's kind of putting your whole self on a page and showing it to everybody and showing yourself to people um mm-hmm. for them to to tear apart or judge which is just terrifying to, to many people it's it's definitely a growth profession I feel um mm-hmm. and many of the things you've described I myself have felt but I think back to that time and I just think maybe I wasn't ready to be there then and you have to go Mm -hmm. through these steps to to get to where you are now and Mm -hmm. for you that's uh, four YA novels and uh, short stories as well can you tell us obviously talking about growth in between your books is after writing each one have you learned something different after creating each work? Has there been aha moments each time you've you've
1: something, written something um, and it's gone out into the world? Well, interestingly, I think my process, I thought my mm. process was sort of the same, you yeah. know, for each book. And I realise now it isn't. Each book or each story is, you know, the process can be quite different. But generally, a lot of the things I do are quite similar. But one thing... That I have learned, you know, in between, and also even before I started. Well, I've learned it more since I've started publishing books, I suppose. And that is just in terms of being a reader, I now appreciate just how much time and sacrifice goes into writing novels and/or writing short stories and just writing in general, writing for publication. One thing I now appreciate as a published author is that even books that that I'd read in the past and I thought, oh, that was not my cup of tea or... You know, that was a bit of a stinker. Or "Mm, if I was to rate it, maybe that might be sort of maybe three, two or, you know, two or three stars or something. And now, of course, I have an absolute appreciation for every single book that it doesn't matter whether or not that was my cup of tea. tea. The fact that somebody sat down and wrote a 65,000, 85,000, 100,000 word novel, I understand the time that took, the doubts, the sacrifice, the fact that they probably did it in between raising children or working a full-time job or working, juggling several part-time jobs, or even, you know, having no income whatsoever, which is also incredibly difficult. I now have just a lot more appreciation for, you know, when I receive a one or a two-star review on something, I think, well, you know, that's fair enough because nobody owes me a five-star review. Nobody owes me a career. Nobody even owes me a read. You know, um, the fact that I'm just, you know, throwing my hat in the ring and putting my book out there with everybody else. And so, but knowing that I'm going to get those lower reviews and knowing that I've read books in the past that I didn't particularly love, but you can still be a successful author, and you can still write fantastic books, or you can write books that some people think are not fantastic. And what it's taught me is that it's just giving me more freedom now to not overthink When I'm writing the story, oh, is this the right thing? Is this publishable? Is this going to hit the mark with the people that read my debut novel and loved it? Is this going to be what my agent wants, what my editor wants, what the publishing house wants, what the readership wants? There's so much pressure that you can put on yourself that you then just become locked up and you can't write. And one thing that I have been trying to do more in more recent years is, and in between every time I finish a book. I remind myself, okay, well, look, you can do this because you just did it again. Yeah. <laughs> but, but what the, the reason why I did do it is because I had to block out the noise and it's taught me from reading other people's books and from writing my own books that I just need to remember there is freedom in what I'm writing and I'm writing this story for a reason. It came to me for a reason. And that reason just might be for purely my own entertainment or my yeah. own stubbornness or the fact that I think it's a pretty darn good story. We'll throw it out there and see what other people think. So I I think that's just what I've now learned four years after my debut novel came out is just remember that it's not going to be for everybody. And there's freedom in that, you know, there's freedom then to just let that go, let go all, all the preconceived ideas of what this book is going to do, how well it's going to sell, how it's going to be reviewed, whether your other existing readers are actually going to like it and just write the book you need to write because every single author that I admire has got books that some of their readership, one minute they've given one book five stars and then the next book that person's brought out, they've given it one star. Oh, I'm so disappointed. But, you know, I I appreciate the body of work that author has put out. And I like to think that in, you know, looking at this career as a marathon instead of a sprint, we, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you're only as good as the next book you release. And I, I don't believe that. I believe yeah, you're either. as good as <laughs> the body of work that you produce over your the, the lifetime of your writing. So, you know, it, it's put my mind at ease a lot now when yeah. I'm drafting to just think there's somebody out there that I'm writing this story for, and I'm going to find them only if I complete it and put it out there. Would you say in a way you're
0: writing your stories for yourself? If you enjoy it and you think it's good, then that should be good enough. I think so. I
1: mean, I think all, all writers, their first reader is obviously themselves because you, you live with this book for so long and you read it over and over and over again. <laughs> and, you know, you read it so many times before you even give it to anybody else for any kind of feedback. So you have to love it yourself, for sure. I think we write books for ourselves, but I also, you know, because I, I'm i not writing, you know, for the age group that I currently am, you know, I, I write for teens. And so while it's a story that I'm enjoying creating, I'm also writing for... Teenage Me and I have to tap into Teenage Me because that is my readership. But I do have a crossover readership. So I do have a lot of adults that also like to read my my novels even though they are technically you know what they are YA not technically but they are YA technically for teens but YA readership is you know it straddles everything from from tween readers all the way through to you know anyone you know anyone yeah (laughs) yeah. you know (laughs) it really spans um the full gamut of of readership so yeah so I suppose I am when I'm crafting these stories, it's very much—is this a story that I am enjoying reading? Because I think you could—you you wouldn't get very far yeah. if you're not re- enjoying reading and crafting this—that story. Um, I think if you're forcing something, thinking, "Ah, oh, this will make me some money," and/or I'll—I'll find a bunch of saps that'll <laughs> enjoy this. <laughs> rival um you know that it's it's not going to be a good book so you do need to make it the best you can it can be but and I think the best gauge of that is whether you as a reader enjoy the twists and turns of your own story yeah (laughs) that's it Uh,
0: would you even say obviously talking about process and you touched on each book and you you quiet out the noise that having a bit of self-doubt is part of the process and that you could almost, you know, you're getting these voices coming in, you know, this is not good enough. No one's going to this person's not going to like it. This person just kind of stand back and be like, well, this is normal. This is a liar. Yeah. <laughs> this is part mm. of the, the process. And I'm going to succeed. Like you said, you know, you've done it before. So yeah. you can do it again.
1: Think, yes. Well, that that's the thing is that you do have to see that that end goal and know that you can actually do it. And that's why it's really hard when you write your first novel, um, which, and, and that's why often people's first novels can take, you know, years to write because you never think it's finished because you haven't got anything. You, ha- you can't gauge whether or not it's ready because you haven't done it before and you haven't had other people read it and say, yeah th- yes, this is ready or yes, this is publishable quality and I think with those little voices, you know, we all have the little the little devil and the angel on our shoulders and I think you have to listen to them evenly, you know, and I think as writers we always lean into listening to the little devil that's telling us that what we're writing is rubbish, that nobody's going to like this, like imposter syndrome, you know, like, oh, what makes you think you can write this? Yeah. What makes <laughs> you think that you can publish this or even, you know, hope to ever get onto an awards list? You know I mean? you just you just some some person sitting there in your your spare room or at your dining table or whatever in your suburban house you know but that's that's who we all are i mean writers aren't some special breed of people that you know that that live in you know extraordinary circumstances we all of the people that write their debut novel or most of them are just people with this dream, you know, to just sit there and all this little stubborn niggling that I, I want to yeah. give this a crack. I reckon, you know, I reckon I could do this. And so you have to kind of really listen to that little devil on your shoulder enough to be able to ha- be objective about your work and to, you know, obviously make the edits and things that you need to make and to to know, okay, this is way too, you know, the word count on this is way too high. I'm going to have to go in. I'm going to have to ruthlessly cut things. But you also need to listen to that little angel that is telling you, this is good, you know, this is good. You, there's somebody out there that wants to read this. Hey, that's a good sentence that you wrote there. Or, you know, to be pleasantly surprised by your own words. And I find the best way to really be able to evenly gauge, you know, the devil and the, the angel on your shoulders is to just put the work away for a while. And then when you pull it out, it's it's so easy then to get honest um. An honest opinion of your own work because you can tell straight away, oh, that line's an absolute stinker, or oh my God, what, you know, I've used the word just, you know, 15 times in one paragraph the good voice in your ear is telling you, this is actually better than what I thought. You know, hey, I, I actually can write, you know, or hey, that's pretty good, but I know now what would make it better. And so, yeah, I think we've we've all got to listen to those voices and you've got to just not get swallowed up by the negative one, because that is the easiest one to lean into, unfortunately, especially when you're tired, you're stressed, yeah, <laughs> you're, you know, you're maxed out in terms of energy levels and things, and you're parking yourself in front of your, your computer to try and work on this novel at, you know, strange hours in and amongst your other other life and other things going on in your family and your work. And the easiest thing to do would be to say, you know what? I can't do this I'm just going to walk away and so yes as we were saying before that bit of stubbornness that that all writers need to have yeah. is definitely to get your butt in chair as well balances it out that's it yeah well thank goodness you didn't listen to the
0: negative voice too much and you have <laughs> produced the works you have which are all fantastic. well it's a battle it's a battle <laughs> <laughs> so you know small spaces psychological thriller um deep waters a mystery and YA mm-hmm. contemporaries a lot of different genres there were, were those the kind of books you you read in, as a teen that you know yeah. that shape that you writing
1: today well funnily enough that's exactly the type of books I read as a teen so I, I I read quite widely um but I definitely um distinctively the two series that that come to mind or the the two types of genres in series that come to mind were I would read a lot of point horror books which were um, um, you know sort of little slim volumes um, all in a um, a kind of a series different authors but they were uh, little horror novels and Christopher Pike novels Um, and so they were YA horror uh, back in the day back in the (laughs) 80s and early 90s and then there was of course Sweet Valley High and Babysitter's Club which I adored and I adored them because I love series and so I think that in amongst some of it where I was probably eye-rolling a little bit at the Sweet Valley High storylines and a lot of it's not really even relatable to us as Australian teens but fascinating.
0: I think that's why I liked it. I had shelves full. My mum was Mm. sick when we we moved back from Scotland to Australia and she had to sell them for like a a quarter of the price but do you remember you ever find and I loved them all. I loved the Sweet Valley Mm. High, the, the middle grade, the kids. I think they had university. Like she really, went I did, to yeah. <laughs> but I feel yeah. like she uh repetitively used the description of the twins throughout every book did yeah. you do you remember that? It was a sun-kissed suppose... golden hair, absolutely with a gold necklace,
1: yeah. and <laughs> and I think there was a lot of element of that repetitiveness, which yeah. you know they had to do in case you know somebody came along and discovered the books and picked up number twenty-one to start reading. You know they had yeah. to kind of ground them in the world. But yeah. for all of us who yeah. read every single one we could get our hands on, it yeah. was it did get repetitive, mm-hmm. Um and, and you know it, it, they were. Yeah, it's funny because um, my reading taste was so kind of, you know, as a teenager, I think the Sweet Valley High and the the Babysitter's Club side of me was you know me clinging to childhood in a way and then the darker stories were were me sort of stepping into adulthood and so it was kind of this little battle there for a few years of me being completely cynical about things like Sweet Valley High even though I was still reading them avidly yeah but then also leaning more into the darker horror books and my mum just had bookshelves uh, you know shelves and shelves in our house of horror novels and you know Stephen King and James Herbert Dean Koontz, and so when I would run out of Things to read. That was my go-to thing. I sort of would, you know, kind of try out what it was like reading my mum's horror novels. And of course, I grew up in the '80s, so we were already Mm. watching horror movies. As you know, it was just the thing you did. I mean, I remember being really young, probably ten or eleven, when my parents let me watch Alien for the first time. (laughs) Um, And and it was just something we did. Then it's not really something I would do with my kids now. But although my kids are now almost fifteen and seventeen, and even now I'm sort of questioning. Oh, is this a bit dark for them? When I think, God, what was I watching when yeah, I was ten? Or, you know, you know yeah. and eleven.
0: Oh, you're lucky um, that you you had horror books from your mum. I would have loved. I I had yeah. Mills and Boons. <laughs> oh, did you?
1: <laughs> yeah, my yes. mum wasn't into those. Funnily <laughs> enough, um, oh, she was God. she was a big uh, book club fan. You know, where Double Day Book Club, where they would they would send the books to your house. You know, and you'd pick what you wanted to keep, and you'd send back the ones you didn't want. And was, we had all these beautiful hardbacks. And and I think probably that you know, reading a lot of those darker books definitely is what influenced me when I sort of started to, you know, first start writing. Because of course, I was dabbling with this picture book idea. Yeah. But then I had this this mystery idea coming to me with this teenage protagonist. And what started out as kind of a lighter mystery almost could have been upper middle grade you know it was quite sort of innocent and sweet it gradually became darker and darker the more I worked on it and that book wasn't actually small spaces it was a different novel and it was a mystery and then it became became kind of a, a dark a dark suspenseful mystery I suppose pretty much what Deep Water is now because it it is deep water so that book was one that i then completely wrote rewrote from the ground up several times and in the end it became deep water so you know nothing is ever wasted you yeah. know that that was i worked for a really long time on that book and i i learned a lot it was the book that i learned Learned the industry with and how to write and um, how to edit and how to rewrite and I just couldn't actually let it go so even though <laughs> after that I wrote and funnily enough again it comes into it again where then I wrote a contemporary a light contemporary novel and that one didn't go anywhere but then I wrote small spaces so I was I've been up and down like this roller coaster of alternating between light and dark books and I think it's that's just my personality because anyone that you know has ever seen photo of my studio for instance and it's very bright and colorful and my artwork is very you know colorful and and sort of humorous and funny and like I love color and I wear a lot of black considering I'm the person that loves yeah. color. Um, but it's just those, those are the different sort of shades of a creative personality, you know, and, and so I love writing lighter and funny books. And I, you know, I love writing um, picture books, humorous picture book ideas and things. But then I also absolutely love darker books, you know, dark thrillers, you know, chewing your fingernails, horror, and all of that. And I think, you know, anybody that tries to kind of categorise me into one area would be completely wrong because I'm sort of, I'm actually, <laughs> my tastes are very varied. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. amazing.
0: So reading all these genres has helped you write the books you've wrote today. Do you start to kind of critically read them, I guess, to, to pick up when you started writing the mysteries, psychological thrillers and things? Do you structure them in a certain way that you feel
1: the books that you have read follow? Oh, I think mm-hmm. I do, but I think with um, I, I am definitely a plotter. So I'm a person that I need to have a bit of structure before I start. So these days, you know, and t- just going back to what we were saying about uh, do things change from book to book? And these days, I'm becoming a little bit more uh, pantsy mm-hmm. in my approach. So I'm I'm sort of um, flying by the seat of my pants a bit more when I'm first um, toying with a book idea. And so sometimes I'll actually write maybe you know, kind of a chapter or two or 20,000 words, (laughs) 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 you know, it it varies, you know, just to try and get the voice and try and get the vibe and see, you know, to try and figure out what What this book is that I'm trying to write. And the book that I'm working on at the moment, which is another dark psychological thriller, when I first started working on this, it was just this kind of it came from a concept rather than characters. Often my my story ideas will will come from a character. And I think, oh, what's happened to this character? What's the situation that they're in? Whereas this time I kind of started with more of a situation and then thought, okay, well, who were the people in this situation? And how has this situation come about? And the Ideas become incredibly kind of complicated and convoluted, and some of them are good and some of them are rubbish. And so it's it's sort of sifting through those ideas, and part of that sifting for me is I need to start writing some of it and start to lay a few um, kind of clues and some red herrings and things, and think, okay, am I going to answer that question later, or is that going to be a red herring? And then the ideas will sort of start to keep building from there. And I, I'll write a lot of notes, and then I'll write. Um, and sometimes i'll jump forward and i'll just write a scene and i think i don't know what this scene is exactly yet but it is so incredibly creepy it's got to <laughs> be in the book yeah. so so i'll write the scene and then sometimes i then have to work out well how am i going to get my characters from a to b how, how are they going to get to that scene and make that scene relevant because i don't want to cut that scene you know and this is all part of writing because it's not a case of like you just sit down i mean it might be for some people for for me my process is not sitting down and saying okay here's the beginning, here's the end. I'll just write, see what happens and just work my way through. I'll throw in some complications. Often I have a, a big question that forms like, I guess it could almost be the log line for the book, like the quick elevator pitch. And I might not have even got the entire story worked out yet, but I will then figure out, well, how, how, how am I gonna, how am I gonna answer that question? How am I gonna get there? But how am I gonna do it? Where the characters think I'm answering the question, And they're quite satisfied or they think, oh, they pat themselves on the back because they think they guessed it, you know, earlier in the book. But then I'm going to put a twist in there and I'm going to actually say, no, that wasn't the answer. (laughs) This is the answer. And so those are all the kind of things that play on my mind as I'm working. And so I have to have some kind of framework for that and some kind of structure. And so often what I'll do is, you know, just going back to my creative background, I often will have to, you know, write things out in sort of chart form. or index card form and color code things, color code characters, okay? And lay it all out on the floor on the table. So I can sort of see it as a visual snapshot and think, okay, well, that character's color coded pink. Now there's no pink for the entire middle of this book. Like this character's just gone AWOL. I'm going to have to bring them back in. What can I give them to do? And what can I give them to do that is pivotal to the plot and then pretty much all the scenes then that I will create I don't really create anything I like to think that is superfluous so it has to have a point in the plot and if it doesn't I think well is it kind of expanding on the character is it illustrating motivation is it doing something or or is it dropping a little clue that then I can open up and talk about more later so every sort of scene and character has a job to do it, well particularly in the the thrillers and the mysteries that I write. When it's the more contemporary novels, I think there's a little bit more freedom there for me to kind of just enjoy the characters a bit more because they are really just character-driven stories. Although I say that, and yet I think whatever genre I write, they're always character and plot-driven. But I think with the contemporary stories, it's definitely more what the main character is doing and the things that are happening around her um, that are driving her certain ways throughout the story. Whereas with the darker stories, I can have all sorts of other elements at play that definitely drive what the characters are doing, but also can really throw in some curveballs for readers um, and have them guessing and going off on tangents. And, you know, one of my favourite things is when I read reviews and people say, oh, oh man, I I went off on a completely different tangent. I thought it was going to be this and it wasn't. (laughs) So I was pleasantly surprised or, or, oh, I must be really, I read a review recently and they said, oh, I must be a bit sick in the head because I was sort of starting to think it was it was this. And I thought it's funny because they don't realise that I steered them in that direction. You know, they, yeah. they think they got there on their own, yeah. but it's, it's carefully crafted, I like to think, that I, I set up these red herrings so that they will go there because I have to distract them. I need to use smoke and mirrors to distract them from what the actual story is and who the actual bad guy is or, or what's actually happening. And, you know, that's what's so fun about red herrings and things and curveballs and twists, yeah. but you have to plan them in. And so writing the kind of twisty stories that I do, you you couldn't, if anyone can do that by flying by the seat of their pants, then they're amazing. Yeah. And I want to sit down <laughs> and I want to have a, a writing session with them and find out how they do it. Because I, I find these things really, you really need to plan and have a yeah. framework. Would you
0: draw on real life, I suppose, because in my mind, I feel like if I was to do something, which I don't write sp- suspense at all, but if I was to do something like that I feel like I'd go on from this big
1: tangent that was probably really unrealistic that, that we'd probably have
0: the reader going oh that wouldn't happen
1: no <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know it's funny readers say that a lot you know I read book reviews of, of a book that I've read and I, I'm i as a reader I can easily suspend my disbelief unless it's um, when it comes to horror and mysteries and thrillers and things um, because I just love a good story so yeah. I I don't necessarily Think, oh no, why would she go? You know, why would she go there when when she's just seen or heard that? It, it's so unplausible. But then I also appreciate the fact that the author is trying to create an entertaining story here. And within the parameters of human behavior, yes, it's 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 you know very plausible that she would go there you know I personally might not because I'm a I might be a chicken or a scaredy cat I probably would because I'm stubborn yeah. <laughs> um, but but I you know like I think you know when when readers um leave reviews saying oh this would never happen in real life and then you find out that the story has been based on something that's from a true true story, you know, true story or true crime podcast or something. And you think, no, these things actually do happen in real life. But those, of course, uh, those reviews you run, it runs the gamut with reviews. You know, you get, you get um, people who just love the way stories are crafted They or they fall in love with characters and will follow that character anywhere through the story. And then you get people that are just all about finding plot holes and this didn't work and that didn't work and, or, and it, oh, <laughs> I don't like purple prose. I don't like this. I don't, or this was too simplistic, you know, and you're going to, you definitely can't craft a story based on your past reviews. Yeah. You can, you can craft a story knowing what your readership that you have created through your own words, what they enjoy for sure, because you think, oh, well, I know. Know they like this in the last yeah. one so I'm going to do a bit more of this you know uh-huh. or I know they enjoyed this so I'm going to kind of step it up a notch in this one and I'm going to blow their socks off you know so yeah. I think you definitely it's you kind of just approach stories differently but you can definitely use your past experiences to kind of make smarter decisions about yeah. what you how you approach <laughs> the next book yeah for sure
0: well, you create absolute page turners and do, I, I've read your books as well. And I've just always, I, I could not put it down, honestly, in one sitting. So can you share tips with our hybrid authors, the ones that are looking to write suspense and page turners? Do you have any tips you want to share of how you've, you've obviously just shared all the things that you do. Um, mm. Is there anything specific that is a do and a don't when it comes to oh. writing this kind of suspense?
1: Gosh, I, I don't know, I, I don't know, if I don't really feel qualified to say what to do and a don't, but I, I do think that you, you know, I think anyone that wants to write in, any genre that you're choosing, you really need to read widely in that genre. So, you know, because there are certain hallmarks of of genres that um, the readership is sort of expecting. So, you know, I think when it comes to things like thrillers, pacing is obviously very important. And sort of that rising tension um, is very important. Red herrings uh, are very important. um, And they don't even have to be particularly, you know, it doesn't have to be littered with red herrings. That can also get a bit annoying. um, Because, you know, you might often, you know, sometimes I read a book and that somebody's sort of set up some dodgy character and it was just a red herring but then this person's disappeared and so you sort of you're able to know as a reader oh well that was that's going nowhere because that person that character's just disappeared but I think everything uh I, I you know I think you definitely need to just kind of read widely in that genre and you need to look at the hallmarks you need to know what the readers are expecting because it's it's okay to have a a, a genre bending book where you know it might straddle a couple of different genres but then you also need to make sure that you're touching on what readers expect in those genres. And and if you don't, I mean, you can write any kind of book that you want to write, but if you want to be marketed in a certain way by traditional publishing or if you want to market your books alongside other comparison titles and things like that, you need to sort of have a clear idea of what those readers are going to expect with your sort of book. So in thrillers, you know, the way it played out, if the way you set it up in the beginning of the book is kind of the question that you set up is answered at the end without any twists and turns or without or is very easy for the readers to guess it's going to fall incredibly flat for them at the end in terms of me writing for a teen readership I'm very very conscious while I'm writing that I could lose that reader absolutely anywhere in the story anytime they'll put the book down and move on um, teens have a lot of distractions they have a lot of other things that are more appealing whereas adult readers, to a degree, depending on what kind of a reader you are, you will kind of see a book through, you know, oh, I feel like even if you skim read the second half, you think, oh, no, I should, I should, you know, because I've started reading it. I'm going to achieve this. I'm (laughs) going to (laughs) read for good, bad or ugly. But teen readers won't do that they'll just put it down you know that's they, gonna eh, dnf this didn't hold my interest and move on <laughs> uh because there's so many books to read in the world you know i don't actually know why adult readers why we don't do that more often to be honest but i feel like we just think well we borrowed this from the library and we paid good <laughs> money for this we should see it through but in all um, fairness and-
0: as well though there's there's been books um because some people i know some people are like if they're not enjoying it to begin with then they'll just ditch it like you're saying and and without that i have to see it through like i i've read books and then they you know. They Do fall short in the beginning, but then they grab your interest in the middle, and you
1: can't put it down. So it's always a bit, you know, um yeah, yeah, it's about not. And and all books, (laughs) there's many, many books that you know readers, uh especially now. I mean, I'm not really making a big sweeping statement about society or anything now, but we do have, um, you know, have a tendency to have a short attention span just because of the way media is delivered to us now. You know, Mm, we can binge read, we can binge watch, we can we can get books onto our Kindle within two clicks and. reading it right now if we've just read a review and we think oh that sounds interesting you can get the book instantly Um, and so there's no kind of that delayed gratification we can just get straight into it and if we want to watch a series we can sit and watch it all in one day if we want to Um, and so I think you know it's with teens you know there's definitely that kind of an issue and I think with us reading our reading habits. I think if there's a tendency for people to think, oh, it's a bit slow, it's a bit slow. I want gratification right now. They'll put it down. Whereas often, you know, the setup with books you do need all of that at the beginning because, and you need readers to stick with it because the payoff later is going to be really good. And if you didn't have all of that, you know, um, that set up at the beginning and exploring the characters in their present day state, you know, you don't need to start a book off with a huge bang. It's good to ease into it because if you took that out and you started with a bang, then readers are going to say, you know, you'll get all these reviews saying, oh my God, the pace, I couldn't even take a breath. It was full on. Uh, It was too, fast pa- it was you know and, and the characters weren't well drawn it was implausible that they would do this oh this came out of nowhere you know and and what they don't realize is when they kind of bag out a book for being too slow in the beginning is that that was all really incredibly useful information um it's just up to the author to figure out the way to deliver that information so that it is enough to hold their interest and you know often that can be done well in thrillers and mysteries and things by throwing them a bone, you know, throwing them a little bit of a a weird little, you know, um, character trait or a weird clue or somebody's little, you know, kind of comment to somebody else or, or their little internal thought about something from their past. And that's usually enough. And as long as you then keep revisiting that, I find with mysteries as a reader, if the author isn't sort of throwing me a bone every now and then, I'm going to get frustrated. And if depending on what kind of mood I'm in, I mean, I usually stick it to the end, because I want to see how they're going to reveal everything. But I can understand why some readers throw the book across the room and go forget it. Because if you don't answer some of the questions that you're setting up in the beginning, and then you're just going to answer them all at the end in one big rush, it's like readers will just be frustrated that the whole book was just one big long sort of series of questions that obviously can work really well but I find that readers like to get some answers along the way because it helps them eliminate their theories about where they thought the story was going or it adds fuel to their the fire of what they were thinking yeah 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 this is what's happening and oh my god this this it's going to be a big payoff at the end of this book so yeah yeah, I think that's just one little tip with um Mm. with mysteries is it's really great to set up all those questions but I think you do need to answer some of them um throughout the story and not just leave everything till the end yeah
0: no that's incredible we just recently with my book club read um the vanapville girls are gone i don't know if you've ever mm-hmm, um, heard mm-hmm. of that and it's so it's a cross between the suicide virgins and picnic hanging rock and and oh, the discussion okay, yeah. was quite interesting around it and it was good to talk about it because as people brought up things it was kind of like oh yeah oh i didn't get that and then she didn't really end it it was mm-hmm. kind of left open to the reader which a lot of them didn't like and and yes. you know they wanted a bit more <laughs> you know <laughs> Some, I think it's, I, I get why why she done it, but yeah, I think a lot of people yeah wanted a bit more. And
1: that's interesting <laughs> conclusion. because we were, we were talking about open-ended things with uh, just a, a panel that I was on on the weekend um, talking about Um, short horror stories, recently published in an anthology put out by Wakefield Press for teenagers. And uh, it was really interesting uh, writing a short horror story compared to writing a novel because uh, it's, you know, completely different. I found it actually easier to write a novel, but once I sort of found my rhythm, you know, I, I, I think I think for me writing, um, say, a thousand words short story is incredibly hard, but we were able to write a 5,000 word short story and you can definitely set up a good, you know, beginning, middle and end in, in a short story of that length. I find that's quite a comfortable length. You do have to kind of watch that you're not waffling too much and that sort of thing, but definitely something that seems to be common in short horror stories and also short horror films is that open ending. So you don't know exactly what's going to happen next for the characters, or it ends incredibly abruptly and shocking, you know, and that's um, something that I kind of, when I was uh, needing to write these short stories, I Uh, watched a lot. I I do watch a lot of short horror films on YouTube. There's a couple of different channels and they just publish, you know, a lot of sort of six minute, 10 minute, 15 minute short horror films. And it's really great to see the screenwriting, you know, to see the writing in those short films and see how they're structured. And they're all very different. And some of them honestly, you've watched something for 12 minutes and it feels like you've been sitting through a, a two hour feature film. Wow. You know, it's just yeah. been so well done and you become so invested with the characters so quickly. But often one of the things that happens is that it it ends kind of in a shocking moment and it leaves it up to the viewer or the yeah. reader to then have yeah. to kind of imagine what happens next. And um, and that obviously is very different to novels because in novels, you you really need to give everyone answers. And I think people, if if there's an open ending in a novel, it can go either the way with readers and so some people will then you know give the entire novel one star because they didn't get an answer at the end even though they might have enjoyed the entire story up to then whereas sometimes open endings can work really well but I personally prefer a definitive answer at the end because I'll I will walk away then feeling in this weird floaty state of you know feeling quite unsatisfied and sort of like unsettled yeah I feel like I haven't finished reading the book, you know, I didn't get the whole story and that it's kind of this uncomfortable feeling that it's, it's like, it's, it's like a hangover. It's a bit hard to let go, you know, for yeah. <laughs> yeah. so it could go either way. I think with those open opening. Oh, uh, that is all incredible
0: um, tips there. Thank you so much. So your books, your psychological thriller, Small Spaces, sorry, and Deep Water, you are published traditional you started out in the traditional publishing route Mm, um you're with some mm -hmm. big publishers walker and allen and unwin how's your experience been with different publishing houses and and the traditional side well
1: it's it's been um probably a little bit different to what i thought it was going to be um i think anyone going into you know the publishing industry we have no idea what it's like um, before we get into it and you kind of have all these uh you know These kind of hopes and dreams about what it's going to roll out like, and the the cold hard reality is that for for most of us, it's not really. You don't become kind of you know these big name authors. You know we're we're not all James Patterson or Colleen Hoover. You go into it hoping that you're just going to be able to find a readership, and so for that I was very grateful. And you know we have a good strong YA community though, quite small but very um, strong and supportive in uh, Australia. So stepping into that and being able to kind to be welcomed into that with open arms was really helpful because I I don't know if I had debuted with an adult book, depending on the genre. There's probably, uh, you know, if you wrote particularly in romance or if you wrote in mysteries or crime or something, you probably would have a little bit of a club, I guess, you know, of fellow authors that write the same genre. But it's in... YA we're lucky in that we write across all sorts of different genres but we're all just very supportive of each other regardless of what each other writes just because of the teen readership that we all share and so I sort of went into like with small spaces I obviously was quite blown away by how well the book did you know it sort of seemed to find readership it sold well and it you know it, it was nominated for a lot of awards and it won some awards and also it was optioned for film so yes. none of this I, I wouldn't have <laughs> thought any of this would happen to me um I went in with really you know I really tempered my expectations when I went into the kind of hoped for the best but I sort of had read and researched enough and it had it was my third book so I'd already been through the mill with two previous manuscripts that went nowhere and one of them my second manuscript was uh I did find an agent with that one uh, in the US and it got rewritten for the US audience. And it went for a year, it went on submission to, uh, you know, like, probably like 100 (laughs) publishing houses or something. (laughs) Yeah, it, it didn't go anywhere. And when I first started writing small spaces, my US agent said, oh, you know, like, what is this story that you're writing? Don't you want to try writing another contemporary? And I said, oh, no, you know, I feel quite strongly about this story. It won't let me go. I'm very interested in it. And when I showed it to her, when she read the first 50 pages, she was not really into it. You know, the feedback that she gave me, she didn't really like the structure of it. She didn't she didn't really understand what I was trying to do with it. And so we ended up having to part ways because I felt very strongly about the book. And she Was, uh, I think, probably a little bit offended that I pushed back on her feedback of how she wanted me to kind of rewrite it. And so uh, that was actually a really good decision, you know, to, to always listen to your gut because I knew that we weren't ever going to kind of agree on it. And I knew that I was going to get pushed into a certain direction. And I suppose for me, that was kind of an indicator of what traditional publishing was ultimately going to be like for me. It was always going to be a little bit of a battle with what people in the industry want me to do versus what I want to do. And I don't mean the kind of books that I write, but I also just mean my expectations and the kind of material that I'm given and to not be able to have an opinion on it, you know, when it it comes to book covers or promotional material, that kind of thing. It's uh, from my background, having worked in uh, graphic design, but also having worked for, I, I have my own business for I think I started my my first business when I was probably about 1998, uh, part-time. And over the years, I've worked in full-time, part-time in my own business. So I'm quite, you know, I have an entrepreneurial mind um, and a small business mind. So to kind of get swept up into this industry that works a particular way, I've actually found that incredibly difficult. Yeah, <laughs> And uh, for a while I would sort of try to convince myself, no, it's cool. I'm okay. I can do this. I can do this. This is what people say it's like, you know? Yes, I don't really, you know, didn't particularly like those cover concepts I was shown, but I'll just kind of politely give my feedback. And, you know, and, and it was, it became increasingly obvious to me that, I am a person that needs more control over my own career and I was finding it very hard to give my opinion on things. And, you know, I was, I was being professional, um, I was being businesslike about it, but what I was finding was the sort of responses I was getting from people who worked at publishing houses was, oh, authors don't really usually get to sort of have a say about this <laughs> or authors don't really get, usually have an opinion about this. It's up to the sales team or, you know, and I thought, well, oh, this is, this is the way this industry works for sure. But it doesn't mean that I necessarily have to kind of conform, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like fall in <laughs> and do what yeah. you know, sit in a corner and twiddle my thumbs and kind of hate what they're showing me. You know, I, I do need to say, you know, to sort of mention, oh, do you think maybe this or that? And I sort of felt like I was becoming, you know, I hated the idea that I was going to be labeled a difficult author or something like that, you know, or she's difficult because she's always pushing back on things. Because for me, my career is obviously more important than any one publishing house, because I've, you know, I've now had work published by three Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I'm publishing my own. And so I, to me, it was more important to look at my career as a whole, um, as the marathon, not the sprint. And I think with traditional publishing, there's a lot about debut novels, you know they, they they go all in with these debut novels but do they really help authors um, the majority of authors then build their career with subsequent books after that so I ended up moving publishing houses after my first book because I felt like I really needed I mean there was some upheaval anyway at the publishing house that I was with my, with my first book where all the staff that I worked on with that book all left or were made redundant so I didn't actually have anyone really there that worked on that first book with me so I felt like it was an opportunity opportunity and I wasn't locked in with a contract I didn't have an agent at the time so I ended up moving publishing houses and like I, I saw it as an opportunity to level up. I really, because I was really interested, I thought, well, look, you know, some of the problems that maybe that I had with the first publishing house, I'd like to think that, well, you know, the new publishing house is clean slate. And uh, and in the end, what became evident to me was that it was probably the the problems that I have are just problems with the industry. So it's it's just the way things are run and that I don't particularly like the way yeah. um, <laughs> the tr- traditional publishing industry works in many aspects. It's been very Kind to me. It's been really great. I've worked with some fantastic people, but I really found that lack of control for my personality type and me as an entrepreneur and as somebody that's trying to build a career and a big backlog of books, I was finding it really difficult. And also the really long lead times on everything in traditional yeah. publishing, you know, to, to submit Especially a Especially with COVID. COVID no, yeah. No, and yeah. to have it think, okay, well, this isn't going to come out until I'm, you know, like for another 18 months, you know, and I thought, oh, you know, there was it came to the point, it came to a head. There was a few different things, but I realized that I had a sense of dread about working on a third book with a publishing house. And I thought, Sarah, that's not right. You know, uh-huh. if, if you are dreading the idea of doing this, that is wrong and you need to change something now. And so that was when I just decided that's it. I'm going to look at this self-publishing idea that i had had for quite a long time actually and i thought i think the timing's right now for me to do something and my second book um deep water came out in during covid it was released the month that everything shut down in australia (laughs) Um, and it was incredibly difficult and It was I couldn't do any events. Um, I couldn't, you know, have see any readers in person. My books went into bookshops that then closed. Um, People were not able to browse them on shelves. There was, for for many reasons, it was a very different experience to my first novel. And I thought I sort of saw a bit of a downward trajectory happening. And I thought, well, if I bring out the third book, is this going to happen, but worse? you know, and I thought, well, I need to prevent that. I need to take back control because I was just getting increasingly depressed and stressed Mm, um, about what was going to happen. And so that was why I I switched genres because it was something that I had been planning for a long time. I had been interested in self-publishing actually way, way, way before, like probably for about 10 years when I had finished my first novel and I was just starting to look into traditional publishing and getting an agent and you know there were the stories back then it was the first wave of you know of self-publishing success with people like Hugh Howey and Amanda Hocking and you know it was really interesting to me that they had had these incredibly popular self-published books and that then publishing houses were um, working with them to kind of snag their paperback rights but letting them keep the ebook rights and and I thought this is all so interesting and I thought this you know there was a lot of stigma attached to to self-publishing back then and I didn't buy into that stigma, I thought, no, you know, like I I know there was probably a lot of people that were self-publishing books that were unedited and with dodgy covers and they just didn't have the quality (laughs) of a self-published book. However, I also knew that there would be quality in there and that anyone that has taken the time to complete a novel, you know, they are working just as hard as somebody who has got a traditional deal. So then what I decided um, was that at some point, Uh, the second book that I wrote that did not end up getting a traditional deal, I thought I'm going to hang on to that idea and I'm going to keep it in my back pocket because one of my mantras is nothing is ever wasted. And I suppose if I could give any advice to any firing authors out there is that you get a lot of advice from people to, oh, put that first novel away in the drawer. You know, don't look at it again. It's rubbish. It was the novel, novel that you learn how to write with. But for me, I put a lot of time and sacrifice into writing those books. You know, I wrote. I wrote the first three, my first three novels I wrote when I was also running a design business from home and I had small children and I was writing those books at sort of from eight o'clock in the evening to 2am. I sacrificed a lot to actually get those written and for nothing to ever happen with them was just galling to me. I couldn't couldn't (laughs) stand that idea. And so I have really gone back and I've really mined all of my early writing to create you know, new work to rewrite it, to reshape it so I can reuse it because I refuse to just let them go. And so the series idea that I came up with for my new contemporary novels um, was taking that contemporary novel that didn't sell in the US and rewriting it reshaping it. And then some of the other novel ideas I've come up with over time, and I've just sort of scribbled them down. I thought, well, how can I link them as some kind of a series of companion novels? And so that's what I did. And I thought, well, I'm just going to start releasing them myself because, yeah. um, you know, I knew that traditional publishers would just want thrillers and mysteries from me. That's um, it, yeah, they don't, they don't want me to switch genres. That's too hard for them to market. Yeah. And so I thought, oh, I'll, I'll do this. I'll take the reins. I'll do this myself. And I just as probably because of my entrepreneurial mindset, I love learning new things. And I have been listening to self-publishing podcasts probably for about the last, um, you know 2 or 3 years just constantly even though i was traditional i was i was in the process of traditionally publishing a book but i was still just really heavily into you know self publishing and hearing what self publishers were doing and everybody in self publishing was really generous with their information and you know things in traditional publishing can be quite hush hush and nobody talks about this nobody talks about sales numbers no one talks about money nobody talks about clauses <laughs> in contracts you know it's all It's all hush hush and the only person that benefits is the publishing houses. It does not benefit authors at all and we all need to talk more honestly about our experiences in the way that self-publishing people do and hybrid authors do because um, that sharing of information, knowledge is power Um, and it really helps us to negotiate better contracts and to also drive our careers differently. And so for me I'm it's put that fire back in my belly again. That feeling of dread is gone and now I I'm, I'm just feel excited about my writing again because uh, I am definitely I'm still interested in traditional publishing for sure. For the next little while, I will be self publishing, but I've definitely got some, I'm working on and brainstorming some book ideas that will lend themselves much better to being traditionally published. But yeah, at the moment, I'm pretty excited about what I'm doing and it's, you know, finding the readership is different. I had sort of hoped that my current readership for YA would just transfer over and they would want to read my contemporary (laughs) stories. But what I'm quickly learning is that isn't the case. But one of the main reasons that I went into um, hybrid publishing and self-publishing is because I want to reach that international readership that I can't reach from just traditional publishing within Australia. And I know that there's people out there that will enjoy these books. And I have a, you know, kind of a promotion and a publishing promotion and advertising plan that I'll put into place when I have more books in the series ready to go. And it really excites me. And it's just fun to think about. And it all of those ideas that I have are all, they all have potential because nobody that I, you know, I don't have, I do have an agent, but these ideas <laughs> are not being pitched to the agent because they're stuff that I'm working on myself. Um, and so really my first feedback will be from my beta readers as to whether they feel it's a viable story. And if they do, then I feel pretty confident about putting them out there. So yeah, it's going to, it's exciting.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's fantastic. That's so good that you're getting so much passion and pleasure and um thrills from being a hybrid mm. author. And I think and I think that's what's good about it is that it suits different personalities for people who who want to do both or or at all really. And I think, yeah, especially from even talking to you in the beginning of the podcast, and you said, you know, you've got picture book ideas, you've got different genre ideas, and I think, yeah, traditional publishing houses tend to want to put you in that little box unless you end up with another publisher. I suppose for something else but um mm, mm. they like you said they want to market their own things your agent are they aware that you're you're doing this and then do they yes. want because you're not pitching it to them do they want to see it though
1: <laughs> uh, I'm really fortunate that my agent Alex Adset she she and I met through uh when I actually got her to consult on the contract for my first novel, um, she did an independent consultation of that contract for me. And then when I had my second contract in hand, I actually approached her and I said, would you be interested in taking me on? Which she did. And then since then, I have, you know, gone, gone this way with the self-publishing. But I know that Alex has other clients that are traditionally published as well as self-published so she um, already works with people who are hybrid authors so I knew that she would be supportive of it which she is and um, she's always saying look if there's anything you want to you know just bounce ideas or anything let me know so it it didn't become an issue which was great and she obviously explained to my publishing house well Sarah's doing this now for the next little while so there hasn't actually been any pushback there might be some noses out of joint I don't know about them Uh, that's that's good for me um, because because it actually doesn't really affect what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't change the process I'm currently going through, um, worrying that I'm going to be blacklisted in the industry or no. anything like that. I mean, I certainly didn't keep anything like that in mind when I, I jumped from one publishing house to another. Um, because I think if it's dangerous territory when you do that, when when you start to, you know, the people, authors that I speak to, especially those who are aspiring and they're not yet published, they're so concerned about making sure that they're not putting their foot wrong or that they're not um, saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing, because they're so worried about being blacklisted or that, you know, that some publishing house is not going to read their work in future. And and it's again, it's that power imbalance where the authors are the ones always on the back foot, even though ironically we're the ones with the talent that have produced Olden the product yep. that they are all going to make money from. And so it's it's always been a little frustrating to me that we we get no say when it comes to certain things or that we might be labeled difficult when it's actually our career. These are our stories and these are the books that we are writing. And they as publishing houses and agents and editors are helping us facilitate getting those out into the world. But with things like self-publishing now, it really does show that there are other avenues that people can take. And that if the traditional publishing industry is constantly slamming doors in your face and saying no, 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 you know, the, the, the way that um you know traditional uh, sorry self publishing has evolved so much now and there's so many opportunities you can publish a fabulous quality paperback that is on par with what the traditional industry produces and it looks no different. You know, the quality is fantastic and you can have it, you pay for professional editing. And so it's side by side with a traditional book. It's no different. And you can, uh, you know, if you can work out how to get that out into the hands of your readers, then there's no reason why you can't get those stories. You know, I hate the idea that people's dreams are crushed and, you know, they think, well, I've got, you know, I've written 10 books, I can't get published, but oh, well, I guess it's just never going to happen. That's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And to a degree that was almost happening to me where I had some stories that I thought, man, I worked for years on that book. You know, I don't think it's rubbish. It's just the traditional industry has told me it's not for right now. And a lot of the books that uh, a lot of the rejections I got from the American publishers on my second novel was the con- it's just not big enough concept in such a crowded market <laughs> and I thought well fair enough but you know what they don't all have to be high concept books you know um, because there are there are quieter books that succeed perfectly well and but that's what you know, traditional publishing houses want. They want something that is going to sell easily in volume and for people to hype up and get excited about. And so it needs to, you know, have have a great tagline. It needs to have a great synopsis. It needs to have a great hook. And so, but there's no reason why all of those things can't work for you if you are a self-publisher or that if you choose to self-publish some books and then also then go hunting for a traditional deal for some other books. So, and that's what's really exciting about it to me you know, I I get, it's funny how I I feel like I'm a completely different personality. If you had spoken to me two years ago when Deep Water came out and uh, I, the, the end of the editing that I did for that book was incredibly stressful. I became ill as well and resulted in me needing surgery, but it, it was a real, it was a really bad time. Yeah. (laughs) And, (laughs) And then when it released after all of that, it kind of fell a bit, by by most standards, it didn't fall flat, but by my standard and holding it up next to my debut novel, it kind of fell flatter than what I would have liked. And it was, you know, the, working on the next book after all the stuff that I'd gone through with the first two books, the feeling of dread, you compare that now, to, like I honestly had had considered walking away and doing something else, which is the saddest possible prospect for anybody that's that has a passion for writing. And it's it's such a shame for all of us if people do do that, because these stories that you have in you, they are worth telling and you will find a readership for them, but you won't unless you, you get them out there. Yeah, and you know you've got these two different ways of being able to do that and I get so revved up now talking about (laughs) the books that I'm working on and the possibilities and the series that I want to create and you know and pseudonyms and different um, readerships and and genres that I want to write in you know a couple of years ago I was ready to walk away so it's amazing what hybrid authorship um, or just full self-publishing for those that go that way the it's it's amazing what opens up for you when you know when you when you start to explore it
0: the freedoms I guess you know that absolutely those feelings as well it's amazing I'll just ask do you do your own covers
1: is that where I do I do (laughs) they're they're fantastic so that's where your design and your writing are now dealing exactly and so going back to what I was saying about always looking you know I was always wanted opportunities where I could meld my you know the writing and the art and that was that's this has been a way I can do it, and um, creating, um, you know, kind of just um, promotional items, you know, bookmarks and postcards and art prints, and and eventually I would love to look at self publishing picture books because I just. You know, there's a couple of picture book ideas I had and I tried really hard to try and get something happening with them. And I, you know, that they have gone out to industry people and just, just nothing's happened with them. And I just, uh, I refuse, I just refuse to just forget about them. Because even if I sold just two copies, you know what, I did it. I did yeah. it. I put it out there. I sold two copies, probably to family members, yeah. um, but but it's there. It exists. Oh, it's there for people to purchase or to get for their library so that kids can read it. That's, that's a- another part of my plan going forward. And the mindset that I was in before I started hybrid publishing was, it's never going to happen for you, Sarah. Just let it go with the picture books, you know? And just the stubbornness in me. I just refuse to do that. But um, but yeah, I'm always looking for more opportunities to meld my artistic side with my creative writing side. So this is perfect for me with self-publishing because I can do covers and I can um, work on my website and I can do the formatting inside the book and I can do all of the book swag and promotional items. and um, And it's all that quality control that But just me, just me. I (laughs) get to do it. it. (laughs) Full control, which is the way I
0: like it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's incredible, Sarah. Oh, honestly, I'm absolutely blown away by everything you've said, your expertise and your excitement and passion. Thank you so much. I could talk, I could steal your time and talk to you (laughs) all day, but we have run out of time. But thank you so much for sharing all that you have. Where can our hybrid listeners discover you and your books on
1: and offline? Uh, I think the, probably the best place uh, to find me online is on my website, which is sarahepsteinbooks.com. All of my links to social media there are there and I have a books page, which um, shows all the books I currently, the books and the short stories that I currently have available. Um, I also have a newsletter link on there, which I currently give away a free novella and also a free horror short story to subscribers. And I trying to send out a monthly newsletter, which is where all of my news will come through. Uh, I also will talk about all of that on social media. And for my two traditionally published books, uh, Small Spaces and Deep Water, you can find them in all Australian um, bricks and mortar bookshops and libraries. Uh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much again. Thanks so much, Joe. It's been great.
0: So there you have it, folks, the sensational and so inspiring Sarah Epstein divulging her incredible hybrid authorship expertise there. If you haven't ever read any of Sarah's books, you are sorely missing out. Once you pick them up, you just don't put them down until they are read cover to cover. So get out and buy some now. Next time on the Hybrid Author Podcast, the award-winning middle grade and young adult fiction author Shirley Marr on Character Voice. Shirley has recently won the Western Australian Premier's Book Awards Prize for writing for children with her middle grade magic realism novel A Glass House of Stars. Shirley shares how she came to write such compelling character voices and how she manages to keep those voices represented through the pages of her book, why she chose to write in second-person point of view and what she wanted to achieve through using this character style, how author voice differs from character voice, as well as sharing her tips for authors looking to create and capture their characters' voices on the page and more. So best of luck in your author adventure for the next fortnight. That's it for me. Bye for now. That's the end for now, authors. I hope you're further forward in your author adventure after listening, and I hope you'll listen next time. Remember to head on over to the Hybrid Author website at www.hybridauthor.com.au to get your free author pass. It's bye for now.